0: This is a podcast dedicated to the poet Lucretius who wrote On the Nature of Things, the only complete presentation of Epicurean philosophy left to us from the ancient world. Each week we'll walk you through the Epicurean text and we'll discuss how Epicurean philosophy can apply to you today. If you find the Epicurean worldview attractive, we invite you to join us in the study of Epicurus at EpicureanFriends.com where you'll find a discussion thread for each of our podcast episodes and many other topics. We're now in the middle of a series of podcasts intended to provide a general overview of Epicurean philosophy based on the organizational structure employed by Norman DeWitt in his book, Epicurus and His Philosophy. Now let's join the discussion. Welcome to episode 148 of the Lucretius Today podcast. Today we're continuing with the list of true opinions and false opinions that Norman DeWitt has set out in chapter one of his Epicurus and His Philosophy. Last week, we got about halfway through the list, and today we're coming back to where we ended last week on the issue of Epicurus's views of truth and the method for determining truth. truth. These are very complicated issues that we're not going to be able to resolve today or even treat them nearly as closely as they deserve to be treated, but we would like to give an introduction to the issues, which is the theme of what we're doing, that newer readers of Epicurus will understand that these issues are out there. And be aware of them so that when they come across them, they can see how it fits into the big picture of Epicurean philosophy. So last week, we had begun the discussion of Epicurus's view of truth. And DeWitt had said that it is a true opinion of Epicurus that Epicurus exalted nature as the norm of truth and that this was a revolt against Plato who had preached reason as the norm and considered reason to have a divine existence of its own. Epicurus taught that nature and the use of sensations and the feelings and anticipations are the standard for determining what we consider to be true. And just saying it like that is so superficial, but nevertheless it gives us a starting point to discuss the issue. Dewey points out also that it's a false opinion to say that Epicurus was an empiricist in the modern sense of the way we look at that word. DeWitt said that Epicurus Mm -hmm. did not declare sensation to be the only source of knowledge. Mm -hmm. And DeWitt goes into a long discussion later in the book about how you have to be very careful about the statement that Epicurus allegedly made that all sensations are true, especially the different meanings that the word true can have. Now, last week, we talked about that just a little bit. Today, let's combine it with the next bullet point that DeWitt gives us, which is a commentary on the method by which Epicurus determined what he thought was true versus what he thought was false. And that brings us to this issue of types of reasoning, especially deductive versus inductive reasoning. DeWitt says that Epicurus taught reasoning chiefly by deduction, And in this, he was adopting the procedures of Euclid and parting company with both Plato and the Ionian scientists who had come before him. Dewitt says that the false opinion is that Epicurus was a strict empiricist and that he taught reasoning mainly by induction. While the truth is that Epicurus is generally presenting to us his reasoning and his conclusions through deductive rather than inductive reasoning. Now, to make any sense of that, we have to talk about what is induction and what is deductive reasoning. What is deduction?
1: Martin, you want to start with that? What's induction versus deduction? Yeah, induction is if you come from observation, so as a spe- special uh, case knowledge, to come to a general statement. So, so we, this one is not based on strict logic, but it's just with some confidence. If all cases are like this, then we, uh, we have observed then we can expect that all other cases where we do not have significant differences are also like that. And the other way around is if we have an established theory and then deduce by logic what is not directly obvious, but what follows from that theory.
0: Okay, so you've started out by defining induction and then you've just defined deduction. In the show notes, we have a link to the Merriam-Webster definitions of induction and deduction. Merriam-Webster defines induction as inference of a generalized conclusion from particular instances. Martin, can you give an example of what inductive reasoning would be
1: like? Simple one. So we see that uh, the dogs we know have four legs. So then we deduce from there all dogs have four legs.
0: Which means that you've looked at particular instances of these animals in front of you. And since every one of these animals has four legs, that all of those types of animals have four legs.
1: Yes. But of course, what happens is eventually you get some sort of this Siamese twin type of a dog, so bound together or where or, or it starts to develop or another genetic defect. So then you have say, a dog with five or six legs. No? So that means it's already refuted. So you need to express it in a more complicated way to be accurate.
0: Or a dog loses a leg, it only
1: has three. You come yes. across them. In Thailand, that's very, a very common sight. Okay, so there are
0: obvious limits and issues with inductive reasoning, especially if you look at it from the point of view of wanting to be certain about something. Just because you've seen a thousand dogs with four legs doesn't mean that every dog in the world has four legs. And if we overgeneralize to take the position that all dogs must have four legs, then we've got a problem when we come across one with three legs or five legs or more. Martin, if somebody were to ask you, well, you may tell me that inductive reasoning has limits and I better be careful about the conclusions I draw. If you're going to be negative about inductive reasoning, what should I do instead? Is there some other source of knowledge other than looking at particular instances? What would you say to
1: that person? Yeah, I mean, it depends from what type of knowledge we are up for. Ultimately, for most types of knowledge we're interested in, we have no way to avoid induction, and we have to live with unknown probabilities attached to what we derive by of induction.
0: Yeah, I think you're right there. We have to live with that knowledge that we have not observed every instance of dogs in the world. We have to live with the knowledge that we may observe things here on the earth, but we cannot observe things on every planet or solar system or other rock anywhere in the universe. And so we're left with questions as to how far we can take our generalizations that arise from induction. And ultimately, if your standard of proof is to say that I don't believe it unless I've seen it, then you've got a real problem. And I think most people would agree in real life, whether they agree philosophically or not, that there's a practical aspect to this in which you have to eventually take the position that once you've seen so many instances of a kind, then there's a probability involved in other instances being consistent with the ones you've already seen. And I think we've talked about, Martin, that there is sort of a common viewpoint in what scientists generally do.
1: Yeah, I mean, what is often done is hypothesis testing. So if you look at a particular narrowly defined aspect, then you sometimes or quite often you can do the hypothesis testing. So that means you collect the cases, apply the statistics and see how probable it is to have obtained that result.
0: I think you've previously said there's a percentage that you've mentioned seems to be sort of a consensus in
1: the scientific community. What is that? Yes. So that means if we can be with 95% sure that it. Uh, or more no? it's correct so then we accept this for this instance and then those guys which review all these papers where these t- type of statements have been done no? then they come up oh, okay in almost all these cases we get this significant result there are a few cases where it doesn't fit so then they examine further or they did this study wrong and uh, so they can dismiss those which don't fit and uh, eventually then by this some broader consensus gets reached what is considered to be uh, the correct model. So, so what is a, a correct statement on how to make sense out of the data?
0: And that percentage of confidence that you're talking about is something that I don't think anybody really suggests there's a magic level that, that we seem to have a consensus that a 98% confidence rate makes a whole lot more probability than a 51% confidence rate, but as far as where you draw the
1: line in percentages, God doesn't tell us that. There are actually different limits sometimes. So for environmental regulations, you do measurements there, so they sometimes have different limits there to apply.
0: Okay. Let's move to the second category, but it seems to me that Epicurus was clearly using inductive reasoning by looking at particular instances and drawing conclusions from them, but he definitely talked about multiple causation situations where you cannot, from particular instances, conclude that there's only one cause. He talked about waiting when you don't have enough information. So I think it would be very clear that Epicurus would have acknowledged the limitations of the inductive method of reasoning. And I would say it that way because I think the limitations of these issues are probably very important for us to be clear about as we move to deduction, because deduction in Merriam-Webster is quote, the deriving of a conclusion by reasoning in which the conclusion about particulars follows necessarily from general or universal premises.
1: Yes, and that is now different from the induction. So that that one is now sure in the conclusion at the end, except it depends on the truth of the premises. That means in the end, it's actually not really more powerful than induction because it stands and falls with the premises. And from a total perspective, these premises eventually have been generated by induction. So that means in the development of something more complex than just a very special ad hoc theory, you will have an interplay of successive deduction and induction to get at something what works.
0: And I think it's probably very important for us to point out that this seems to have been an incredibly important distinction between Epicurus and Plato in that Plato was beginning his reasoning from these ideal forms that he considered to exist somewhere in the universe as absolutes, and that his position was you could somehow get knowledge of these absolutes through types of logic and types of reasoning, and that unless you could reason based on those absolutes, you could never really be sure about anything. So Plato was tying confidence and being sure about something to starting with these universal premises or ideal forms as he apparently called them.
1: Plato hid hit actually how he would come up with this idea and there will definitely have been some inductive aspect in there but he hid it because he didn't accept the real world as we per- perceive it was real and that we can use it to find out things.
0: He effectively hit it through his geometry and mm-hmm. his almost numerology of things, it seems to me. And the point that I would emphasize about what you just said is that this is where they differed so much is that Epicurus emphasized the reliability or the ultimate need to rely on the senses and Plato was rejecting the contention that the senses could ever lead you to anything that was true. He was using these other formulaic methods tied up in issues of different types of logic that Plato was suggesting and so I've always interpreted this and this is where it really comes home is that Epicurus believed that nature gave us only the senses the feelings and the anticipation as the methods for determining truth, whereas Plato rejected the senses as ever being sufficiently reliable for us to come to any confident conclusions that we had to go beyond the senses and, in fact, to some extent even reject what the senses are telling us in order to determine what's true. And it seems to me, Martin, that that leads us to another point that we've raised in the show notes for this week, which is the issue of the, quote, problem of universals. There's a Wikipedia article that introduces this topic and it defines universals as qualities or relations found in two or more entities. As an example, if all cup holders are circular in some way, circularity may be considered a universal property of cup holders and it gives another example and then it comes to this conclusion it says philosophers agree that human beings can talk and think about universals but they disagree on whether universals exist in reality beyond mere thought and speech So to some extent, what we're talking here is about this issue of universals. And I don't know how far we really want to go into it today in this podcast, but certainly people who are interested in Epicurus need to file this question away as something to keep aware of and to understand the differences between Epicurus and the other Greek philosophies. If we try to summarize it though, Martin, do you have a comment on how Epicurus might differ from Plato and Aristotle even on the problem of universals?
1: Yeah, Epicurus would certainly have thought that these universals are in our thought only. There's a chapter in A Few Days in
0: Athens where Francis Wright talks about color as an example of this. And there are other types of examples that get very complicated. But when you start categorizing things that are common between separate objects, that process of categorization is going on in your mind and human minds. And there was not a universal mind. There was not a God or any other force that itself generated these categories universally. We're seeing them and identifying them. For example, the color yellow. And one way that one way this question gets uh, discussed is does the color yellow exist on its own separate from things that are yellow? Does yellow exist in the abstract apart from things that are yellow? No. I Yes, I think that's the right answer from an (laughs) Epicurean perspective. But we're going to wait and let Joshua explain this to us now. Joshua, are you ready to jump in on that question? Does yellow exist separate from things that are yellow?
2: Well, we might have to come back to it. The reason I say that is because I started this Google search way back in the conversation, and it's probably no longer relevant, but I'll I'll get into it anyway. And, And the idea is this, even when you have established something that you think is true, and you've got all your ducks in a row, and and everything makes sense, and you've accounted for all the available information, and it's logically sound, it's still possible that you have made a mistake or that you've simply left something out. And the example that I can use here is of the duck-billed platypus, because what you had in Europe at the time among these scientific communities, communities of biologists, was an idea about what a mammal was, And they had, I guess it's kind of an inductive type argument. You you know, you look at all different kinds of mammals. And of course, they didn't have Watson and Crick's knowledge of the double helix. They had not, I guess, synthesized or what's the word? They didn't didn't have a breakdown of the genome. In other words, they couldn't compare the genetic information of a rat to a monkey to a dog or anything else. So they, they didn't have the genetic basis for classification of animals in nature. But what they did was they tried to classify them according to other things. And what the platypus represented in about the year 1884 was a challenge. And in fact, it was such a challenge to the prevailing system that many biologists in Europe and North America simply thought that it was a hoax, (laughs) that it wasn't real. Until the year 1884, in August, I think it was August 29th, there was a 25-year-old biologists, relatively young scientists working in Australia, who had made an important discovery, who had been studying the issue, trying to actually find a specimen in nature, a, not just a dead specimen, Europe had already you know, seen dead specimens, but to really try and capture a live specimen. And so on this day, August 29th, 1884, this William Hay Caldwell, I think was his name, sent a telegram to the British Society for the Advancement of Science in Montreal. And the telegram was just four words long. It said, monotremes oviparous ovum meroblastic. That probably doesn't mean anything to any of us, except maybe for uh, Martin here, but it absolutely caused a sensation. And you could imagine, as this was read out to the society, the room suddenly goes quiet, because what it represents is that while they knew that if the platypus was real, it was a mammal. It it had mammary glands. It had fur. It seemed to satisfy all the necessary criteria for inclusion as a mammal. But the claim that it was an egg-laying creature was a huge problem. And so, frankly, many scientists in Europe simply just didn't believe that. Uh, but this William Hay Caldwell uh, was able to demonstrate that this was true. And so he sent off this telegram. And so. What kind of challenge does that present to this body of information that we already have? That's an interesting question. One of the words that gets thrown around in science is the word theory. And we all know that theory has a very different meaning in a a strict scientific context than it does the way it's used among people more casually. And so a theory is an explanation for phenomenon that has, I guess, taken account for all of the known facts. And not only that, but can account also for hitherto unknown facts. And so this issue of the platypus would be a hitherto unknown fact that biologists would have to account for. But it doesn't necessarily bring the whole system crashing to its knees. You simply have to analyze where you went wrong, where you made logical mistakes, where you made sins of omission or sins of commission when you were analyzing data. You simply have to adjust your conclusions based on The new evidence that has presented itself in the meantime, there's an example from the ancient world in which one of the big two, Plato or Aristotle, can't remember who it was, had defined a human being as a featherless biped. And so Diogenes, the cynic, plucks a chicken and and walks in and presents Plato's man or Aristotle's man because it was a biped and it didn't have feathers. It's always possible to make mistakes when you're talking about these things, but the ability to account for new information and to assimilate it into your system really just makes the system stronger rather than, you know, a lot of people tend to think that, oh, if your system didn't predict this or if it didn't account for this, then it's a failure and we shouldn't believe you. But really the ability to account for new information is so much of what the scientific endeavor is and, and what it represents. And I have no idea what that has to do with the color yellow.
0: Oh, it absolutely has lots to do with the color yellow. That was very good because that's really the takeaway point. I don't want to imply that we're finished discussing this because I think we spend most of the episode today talking about these issues. But in the end, what I heard you talking about is what happens when you find new information that does not fit into your preexisting paradigm. Obviously, to most of us, I think, from an Epicurean perspective, you are going to adjust your paradigm. You're going to adjust your theory to now come into consistency with all of the evidence and not just the evidence that you had previously. And so what is the proper attitude towards knowing that you're going to adjust your paradigm? I think most scientifically minded people have a practical perspective that. The fact that duck-billed platypus could be discovered and make them revise their theory of what a mammal is does not shake their worldview so much to cause them to question existence and to just become total nihilists and jump off a cliff. If you go into these issues understanding that there are limits to your reasoning, and that you have to be aware of the possibility that your reasoning could be wrong, then you're going to be able to adjust to these new discoveries. Probably another good example that comes to my mind, although I haven't quite reached it yet, is what happens to the world of religion when finally, as we expect it to be, life is discovered somewhere else in the universe besides the Earth. There's been a lot of discussion over the centuries that such a thing would be revolutionary and human Affairs, and no doubt it would be revolutionary for certain people, but from the Epicurean perspective, he's been expecting that for 2000 years or more, that there's life elsewhere in the universe. And nevertheless, even though he's taken this position to expect something that we have not seen proof of to this point, he doesn't fall into absolute skepticism into saying that nothing can ever be known with confidence. And that's, I think, the thing we come constantly back to in these discussions is just because you realize that certain decisions have to be made on probability based on the evidence that you do have, does that lead you to become a total skeptic who thinks that the salt and the pepper in front of him on the table may magically disappear at any moment and he'd better pick one quickly before it does? That's why this is all so related to skepticism. I think we all know what skepticism means in an extreme sense, and we can understand the difficulties with it. But finding another word that correctly describes Epicurus's position is maybe a little bit harder. Because if Epicurus was not a skeptic, is there a good word in your view that summarizes Epicurus's perspective in relation to skepticism?
2: I don't know about a single word that would express this, but there's a phrase that he repeats again and again, particularly. I think in the letter to Pythocles, he says nothing in phenomena is against it. He uses this to, if you're going to say, for example, give an account of magnetism, and and Epicurus probably didn't have an accurate understanding of magnetism because he lived in the 3rd or 4th century BC, and it probably simply was not possible at that time to have an accurate understanding of magnetism. But when he would try to explain something like the lightning or a tornado or an eclipse, he would account for it given what he thought was good evidence at the time, and then he would cap it off by saying, nothing in phenomena is against it. So the implicit assumption, I guess, that you're making when you say that nothing in phenomena is against it is that when something in phenomena does come up, something that you didn't know about before, when something like that does present itself, you can't go on saying that nothing in phenomena is against it. You either have to examine this new thing and determine whether it really is real, which in the case of the duck-billed platypus, the scientists of Europe were prepared to do by simply discarding it. But in the end, what they did was, with better evidence, came to accept that this was true, and then adjusted their system accordingly. And Epicurus, in the face of new evidence, would have had to do the same thing. It's implied in the phrase that he keeps using there in the letter to Pythocles, nothing in phenomena is against it.
1: Yes, and the opposite of skepticism is dogmatism. So that's, that's what you touched on previously already.
2: Which is a word that we
0: have to be very careful with, given its very negative and overbroad connotations.
1: We just said that these dogmas we establish, they are open to revision if the data don't fit it. If new data don't fit it anymore, then we revise it. And then we have a new dogma with which we then avoid to become skeptics. And if somebody heard you say what
0: you just said, Martin, without having heard our discussion last week about dogma, how would you define dogma
1: in that context? Or we can rather use the adjectives, and it's more easier to say. So instead of characterizing our perspective of it as dogmatic, we can call it axiomatic.
0: Yes, you discussed that last week, yeah. Another word that I think people might be tempted to use would be realist as opposed to skeptical, but I have a feeling that realist doesn't really answer the questions because it really doesn't tell you what is real. I'm not sure there's a better word simply than to describe it as Epicurean, to describe the way Epicurus was thinking. But I think it's very helpful to talk about it and try to put it into more simple terms, because you can say that Epicurus was not being a skeptic about everything, and that he was being realistic. But if you were to try to use that word, you still have to take positions on, well, what is real and how do you determine what is real? which I think constantly leads us back into this direction of looking at the faculties that nature gave us as what Epicurus is pointing to as the standard for what is real. If something is consistently reported to us through these faculties of nature, it seems to me that's what Epicurus is saying we point to as being real. And if it's not consistent with what these faculties are reporting to us, then it's not something that would be real in that sense. But to follow on that, Martin, you use the word axiomatic. What do you think about using the word realistic to describe Epicurus?
1: Yeah, I mean probably in some some ways it may be applicable, but the problem is it's in conflict with I think what is the most adequate description of modern science because modern science is not about truth. Or truth occurs there in a trivial sense, like the measurement protocol, the data in there have been truly recorded. So so that's true. No? So the data, the numbers in there are true. We actually measured them. But it it doesn't matter. The question of whether a a scientific theory is true or false does usually not matter because the question is, is the theory adequate for what we want to find out with it? And whether it is then also true, that just doesn't matter. And this is different the way the the ancient philosophers thought. They they really thought they were after the truth. And I I think not all, but most scientists nowadays are not after the truth.
0: That's an interesting way to look at it, and I'm not sure that says good things about modern science, but it's a very good way to look at the question, are we after truth or are we after something else? First of all, what was Epicurus after? Was
1: Epicurus after the truth or was Epicurus after something else? the way it's written it really he really thought this is true so his he's his modeling as his pre-scientific modeling that this was true and whereas scientists who think like me, don't think that we're dealing with truth in science. I mean, there are others who think like that, and that means that this realism is is the wrong opposite. So, so that means these two different camps you can call realistic and anti-realistic. So that means in that sense, I would be an anti-realist, but if you say this casually, it wouldn't make sense.
2: There's a scene in one of the Indiana Jones movies in which he's describing what archaeology is to his students, because he's a professor at a college or university. And what he says basically is that archaeology is the attempt to discover facts. And then he goes on to say, if it's truth that you're looking for, you need to go down to room whatever, which is Dr. Whoever's philosophy classroom. That truth is the province of philosophy and that science is, is more appropriately attempting to deal with facts. I don't know if that clarifies things.
0: I think it clarifies things as to modern science. But I don't know that it necessarily clarifies things as to what we are after in the study of Epicurus and in the application of Epicurean philosophy, because I have a hard time believing that at any point Epicurus would abandon the word truth and say that we were not after truth. It sounds like, I think Martin said this a moment ago, that he thought his position was both true and consistent with everything that nature tells us. And I don't think you would admit the possibility that nature would point us in some direction other than truth, but the word truth itself is so complicated and so subtle. Again, we referenced last week Pontius Pilate's question about what is truth, and unless you've really thought about that, you're never going to really get a firm understanding, I think, about where Epicurus was going.
2: Yeah, it's interesting because in scientific endeavor, the stakes are... I guess, lower than in philosophy and in, in, in science, it's much worse to be very wrong. And so I guess it's bad in philosophy, too. But in philosophy, what you're dealing with is, is something that you always point out, which is if the claims that were made by Christians, if the claims that were made by Muslims, if these claims were true, it would fundamentally alter Uh, Any approach we have to questions about death, questions about how we should live our lives, questions about the afterlife, questions about our relationship with God. I mean, the stakes could not possibly be higher than when what you're dealing with is an afterlife of eternal torment and torture and punishment. So it's in that context that we have to have philosophical conversations and science doesn't get us there. So we need to, I guess Epicurus needs to find other ways to approach these fundamental issues, which science because of its natural limitations simply can't answer. Issues like, is there a life beyond the grave? Issues like, does a supernatural God exist? Questions like that, that are particularly the province of philosophy and religion and where the stakes are very high indeed
1: yeah but again i mean they talk about truth but they have no way to find it out
2: right because the word that a scientist might use would be unfalsifiable to explain you know if you're going to make a claim about life beyond the grave the claim is unfalsifiable it cannot be tested
0: and if you hold yourself to the standard that the only thing that you are totally confident in is something that you can observe for yourself You've reached the end of your ability to reason at that point. We don't accept, most of us, that there is any evidence from anyone who has come back from being dead. And almost by definition, we all understand that once we're dead, we don't come back from it. So in terms of being certain about what happens after you die, if we take the position that we haven't experienced it for ourselves, so therefore we're not sure, we've reached a dilemma in our reasoning I think Epicurus was taking the position that if you stop at that point and say, I don't know, you're always going to have doubt in your mind that will cause you to live less happily than you otherwise would. And you have to then confront these questions. Is it legitimate to speculate about possibilities without any existing evidence of your own to consider those possibilities to be valid? Is it legitimate to think that there could be pink elephants on the other side of the moon simply because you've never been there before? Is it legitimate to think that you could spend an eternity in heaven in bliss because you can't rule it out since you've never been there before? Is that whole line of thought a legitimate line of thought? And it seems to me up is saying it's not.
2: Right. So the question is, how do you sort which claims can be evaluated reasonably and which claims can't? And uh, I think it was Christopher Hitchens who formulated this particular way of expressing things, which was extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. And those claims which are extraordinary but have not furnished extraordinary evidence should simply be dismissed. It's not worth our time. You could take Thomas Jefferson's approach. He says about Catholicism and its doctrine of the Trinity, the triune God, that an idea has to be comprehensible. Before logic or reason or these faculties of our minds before we can act upon it. And no one have ever had a comprehensible or or sensible idea about the Trinity. And so the, the only response we have left to us in cases like that is simply to dismiss it, you know, so it's just to laugh it off, because if you're going to make a claim like the claim about the Trinity, you'd better have some good evidence to support your position. And the view of Thomas Jefferson was that People who were making claims about that simply did not have good evidence to support their position.
0: And when you say good evidence, that means you have to examine the nature of your evidence. And Epicurus is always pointing back to evidence coming from the five senses, from the anticipations and the feelings as being the sources of evidence given to us by nature, as opposed to evidence that you might consider to come from circumstantial reasoning in terms of just creating hypotheticals that don't have observable evidence to support them, but those hypotheticals lead you to all these arguments in favor of God, for example, or that lead in that direction. You know, this is probably a good time to remember that we're in the introductory section of our discussion of Epicurus in chapter one here. So probably we've gone as deeply into this issue of truth as we have the time to do at this point in our discussions. But before we leave it, let's just bring it home. It seems to me that the key point that DeWitt is bringing up to us here is that we have to really be careful to understand the way Epicurus is approaching the whole issue of truth in terms of what truth is, how you determine what truth is, and that this is a major area of significance in Epicurean philosophy that he's telling us to be very careful about, and that ultimately truth in the Epicurean viewpoint is derived from and validated against the evidence of the senses, but that at the same time, in processing the evidence of the senses, it's important to think about the types of reasoning, including deductive and inductive reasoning, and be clear in the way that you're coming up with what truth is and how you've arrived at it. And that summary is a way to lead into the next section that DeWitt brings up here, because that summary seems like it's very abstract and it is a very deep subject. But the next subject that DeWitt raises is that, in fact, Epicurus was not just a thinker who was spending all his time deliberating and chasing down rabbits along various trails of logic. DeWitt's next point is that Epicurus was a man Mm. of action and not just thought. DeWitt says that it's false to say that Epicurus was a moral invalid, a pacifist who taught retirement from and non-engagement with the world. The truth of the matter is that Epicurus was actually producing a philosophy that had very serious missionary aspects and that Epicurus was combative and he had natural gifts of being a leader, an organizer, and a campaigner. So let's talk about that for a few minutes. One of DeWitt's earliest essays on Epicurus was entitled Philosophy for the Millions which basically explains this point that DeWitt is making, that Epicurus was not just an isolated thinker sitting in a monastery somewhere churning words for his own benefit. He actually knew and was engaged in a project
2: of enlightenment
0: of other people.
2: One thing I want to point out is this view that the ancient Greeks seemed to have of their philosophers. Perhaps there was an element of pride involved in being the kind of civilization, the kind of city state that attracted deep thinkers. But they also had this view of philosophers that was sometimes quite ridiculous. And they would tell stories about Thales or Thales of Miletus um, being so deeply involved in his study of the stars that as he's walking along, he falls into a well because he's looking up. It was said about Empedocles that he jumped into a volcano to prove that he was a god. Another story would be one of Archimedes when he was from Syracuse, which is on Sicily, I think. And when his town was sacked by the Romans, the Roman soldiers were instructed not to kill him. But he was so intractably focused on his work, he was studying his diagrams. And usually in paintings, he's portrayed this way, that when the Roman soldiers encountered him, he didn't even look at them or, or seem to notice them at all until the moment when they ran a sword through him. It's this idea that because philosophers are interested in the workings of nature and things that are going on in the sky things that are behind the scenes that their full attention and focus is on that and so that when it comes to the real world and the things that people have to do to survive in the real world or simply to get by in complex societies the philosophers are not adequate to the task and there's many many stories from the ancient world to make this point point. and in drama was it The Clouds or The Frogs? Maybe it was The Frogs. Some of these plays from the Greek world where philosophers are lambasted. And in fact, Lucian of, of Samosada, a satirist and a biting one at that, had many of the same approaches or, or takes on the prevailing attitude of philosophers in the world because they didn't really seem to focus on things that mattered to most people.
0: They lived in an ivory tower.
2: Yes, yes.
0: One thing that DeWitt points out in elaborating some of this stark and maybe I'm remembering what you did last week, Josh, where you just go down the list of the names of the books that Epicurus and his people were writing, and, and so many of them are entitled against a particular person or against a particular idea. That's the point that DeWitt is raising here, that Epicurus was by disposition combative and a natural leader and organizer and campaigner. It does seem like to me, at least, that the school was set up from the very beginning to be a school. It wasn't just him writing his own books It was intended to be an organized presentation of a reform movement, at least in philosophy, if not in the wider society itself. And maybe we should blend this in with the next item that DeWitt raises, because next in his list of true and false opinions is the discussion of Epicurus's view of self-interest. DeWitt says that it's false to say that Epicurus was a totally egoistic hedonist ruled solely by a narrow view of his own self-interest which is sort of the caricature that you do see about Epicurus and Epicureanism even today, that they're just totally focused on the pleasure of the moment. What DeWitt says is in fact true, is that Epicureanism was the first world philosophy that was acceptable to both Greeks and non-Greeks, and that Epicurus taught that we should make friends whenever possible. So that it's not an inward facing and not necessarily outward facing exclusively either, but that it was focused on the result of living a pleasurable life, which cannot be obtained successfully in most cases unless you are to some extent engaged with the world around you. And the emphasis that Epicurus places on friendship and living among people who are your friends and how you don't necessarily need the assistance of your friends as much as the confidence that they're available if they are needed. There's a tremendous amount of material in Epicurean philosophy about the interactions that the individual has with the wider group of people around him. So Epicurus was not an isolated thinker who just wanted to write his own theories down and didn't really care about how to apply them or implement them in the real world. That as a man of action and as a person who has a correct view of self-interest, you know that your self-interest must be supported by action in the real world among your friends.
2: Cassius, it strikes me that describing him as an isolated thinker is not just wrong, but it's actually a very charitable view of the wrong view. What they actually said about Epicurus was that he was like a pig, you know, so focused on looking down and and worried about his own pleasure that he had no time or ability to assess or approach or deal with things that were above or beyond himself, that his followers are pigs in his herd, which is how Horace sort of ironically describes himself. And there was that other instance. You might have to fill me in on the details here because I can't remember it specifically, but someone was asked, why is it that many men are seen to leave other schools of philosophy and join the Epicurean school, but that apart from Timocrates, no one was seen to leave the Epicurean school and join the other schools? And he says that for the reason that a man can be made a eunuch, but a eunuch cannot be made into a man. So there is this rather scathing portrayal of Epicureans as being effeminate as lacking all self-awareness and their heedless pursuit of pleasure and the grotesque result of that in their lives. There's a view of them as being stupid, as being poor citizens, as being not fit to have any participation in public life in Greece. As I say, simply describing him as as an isolated thinker would be to put actually quite a good face (laughs) on it, even though that doesn't accurately answer to what he was either.
0: Yeah. When you say charitable, that's a good word. It's overly charitable to describe that by simply saying that he's a hedonist or whatever. It seems to me that there's this general impression that Epicurus is telling people to turn inward. Dwitt is using the words here that he has a narrow view of his own self-interest. And I think that's really very false. And an analogy that regularly comes to my mind in comparing Epicurus with other philosophies is to compare this with the modern viewpoint that's associated with Ayn Rand or objectivism. She wrote a book called The Virtue of Selfishness and said that it's correct to be selfish as opposed to altruist. And she's setting up this, I think, false choice between saying that the goal should be your own interest as opposed to other people's interests I think she's probably correct in saying that it's wrong to say that your goal in life should be other people's interest above yourself you've got that cliche about what is it God first other second myself last that you'll find thrown out commonly in the world today she's probably right in rejecting altruism as the ultimate goal of life but then to flip back and say that your own selfishness is a correct description of the ultimate goal of life I think Epicurus would also equally condemn, if not more condemn, because if you keep your focus on as Epicurus was doing, the, the ultimate goal is pleasure, very widely defined. You cannot achieve the most pleasant life by putting your own self-interest all the way, always, as the first focus of your decision-making. Sometimes, Epicurus says you must choose pain in order to get a greater pleasure. Sometimes you're going to put the interests of other people above your own. Epicurus said sometimes you're going to die for a friend. And so the idea that Epicurus was a narrow egoist in the Ayn Rand view would be as wrong as suggesting that he was a communist or something like that in terms of saying that you should put other people's interests always above your own logically applying his philosophy, you're going to realize that there's going to be a a time for everything under heaven, a time to put your interests first, a time to put other people's interests first, all in the service of keeping the goal of nature, which is living pleasurably as your definition of the goal and not just your
2: interest versus other people's interests. Just because you mentioned communism, what Epicurus actually says in, in his own terms was well, I guess we don't have what he said in his own terms. What Diogenes Laertius describes Epicurus saying is that for a school of philosophy to hold property in common betrayed a lack of trust among its members, which was the reason that he did not, in his school, hold property in common, as I think they may have done among the Pythagoreans. I'm not sure.
0: Yes, I think that's one of the best examples that people should always keep in mind in thinking about what Epicurus might say about current affairs, modern politics, and so forth. There's just not an absolutely correct system that applies at all times, all places, to all people. I believe there's an example about him sharing beans at some point when Athens was under attack, something like that.
2: He does know. say about wealth, though, that accruing great wealth can make you actually a target. And that by,
0: exactly
2: by sharing it with your friends and with your neighbors and all that you actually increase your i guess you could think of it as a web almost like a safety net (laughs) that by getting more people on your side that by establishing more friendship more connection on proper terms he's very careful about the way that we should pursue friendship that by doing that you actually give yourself a broader foundation for support and for friendship which is so important for his method of pursuing pleasure
0: isn't there also a Vatican saying about
2: love of money? I seem to never remember the phrasing on this one when you ask me, which is seems to be more frequently than some others. Not Something about money justly gained or unjustly gained. Yes, In, yes. in both cases, it's that the love of money is the problem, whether justly gained or unjustly gained. If it's unjustly gained, it, there's all those ancillary ethical issues that impend here. But even when it's justly gained, the love of money for its own sake is something not to be cultivated in yourself.
0: Right. Money is such an easy example. When you start talking about altruism versus egoism or whatever, Vatican saying 43, the love of money, if unjustly gained, is impious. And if justly gained, it's shameful for it's unseemly to be parsimonious even with justice on one side. So that is a good example of, again, you keep your focus on the ultimate goal, which is living pleasurably, and sometimes that's going to mean that you're going to put the interests of other people, especially your friends, ahead of your own. And it's not a contradiction within Epicurus to take that position. As we begin to wind down for today, let's go ahead and deal with the last of his examples of true and false opinions, the issue of Epicurus' relevance to the development of Christianity. DeWitt points out that it's false to say that Epicurus was an enemy of all religion. And what is in fact true is that Epicurus had his own views of what's a proper religion and that he was changing the emphasis from political virtues for the state to more social virtues in terms of how best to relate with other people and that he was developing a wider viewpoint that was applicable not only in Athens and Greece but everywhere. But this whole issue of Epicurus' relationship to Christianity, we see throughout DeWitt's book that he'll bring up this issue in ways that probably most of us agree would be a little bit on the stretched side, and that he sees commonalities sometimes where maybe most of us would not see those commonalities. But maybe we can generalize it even a little further and say that the false opinion is that Epicurus was just an absolute atheist in the way that we categorize that subject today and that he just dismissed the ideas of talking about divinity whatsoever. And we're not gonna get into a long discussion of Epicurus's views on the gods and so forth as we talk about this, but just as a general summary of DeWitt's point, there is mention of the Epicureans in the New Testament and the issue of what the relationship was, if any, between the early development of the Christian church versus the development of Epicurean philosophy is of some interest to some of us at some times. So let me ask the question this way. To what extent do we see a relationship between the development of Christianity and the development of Epicurean philosophy? Maybe the ultimate point that DeWitt is actually raising here is that Epicurus was changing the focus from being a good citizen to being a good person, and that there's a personal aspect of Christianity that is similar.
2: That would be one way of putting it, yeah. That rather than raising citizen-soldiers in service of the state, you're attempting to do something maybe more personal and more social, something that doesn't have reference directly to politics or who's in charge. Although, of course, in Christianity, they talk a lot about the kingdom of God. <laughs> mm-hmm.
0: so, but it is your personal relationship with Jesus Christ that is
2: so frequently yeah. talked about, too. Right. and And smaller things like the way that the early Epicureans would, I guess, I don't know if this is really applicable, but the way that they would have pictures of Epicurus in their house or on rings or just having his picture around, which was something slightly novel for a philosopher to do. And in Christianity, there's this weird tendency to outright reject one of the commandments in the Decalogue, which is to not make graven images, because the making of graven images of Jesus is something that is very common and very widespread. Whereas in Islam, this commandment is actually heeded to the letter, and they do not make images of Muhammad or of God or of any of the other figures and when you go to a mosque which I've never been to a mosque but what I see in pictures is this stylized arabesque the way it's described method of decorating and taking like the Arab language for example and using that decoratively inside the mosque rather than having stained glass windows of the signs of the cross or the stations of the cross or however it goes.
0: You know, maybe the best way to do justice to this section and help us bring it to a close, in fact, as well, would be just for me to read this paragraph that's from page eight of Epicurus and his philosophy. DeWitt says, Epicureanism served in the ancient world as a preparation for Christianity, helping to bridge the gap between Greek intellectualism and a religious way of life. It shunted the emphasis from the political to the social virtues, and offered what may be called a religion of humanity. The mistake is to overlook the terminology and ideology of Epicureanism in the New Testament and to think of its founder as an enemy of religion. Somebody interested in pursuing that further would want to read DeWitt's second book entitled St. Paul and Epicurus, where he goes through the New Testament and looks at different passages and speculates as to what relationship they could have to Epicureans. And a lot of us have different views about whether those examples are useful or not. In my own personal view, I've always seen this aspect of DeWitt's book as something that is going to appeal to a certain type of person, especially someone who's coming from Christianity and looking to study Epicurus for the first time. They're going to find it interesting, I think, in many cases to look at the different statements that are made by Paul in his books and think about how they do and seem to refer to arguments that Epicurus was making. In fact, wit makes several analogies that the early Christians would have considered Epicurus as a form of antichrist. And that some of the phrases that are used in discussing that will wrap into them aspects of the Epicurean philosophy, such as the phrase about the weak and beggarly elements that Paul was accusing the Christians of still being slaves to. It's hard for me, at least, to look at something like that and not think that it's applying to an Epicurean point of view. So there's a certain type of person who will find the points that DeWitt raises about early Christianity and statements of the Bible as being of particular interest to them. And there's a certain type of people that will not find those of particular interest to them, and I would say they can simply ignore those sections of DeWitt if they wish to. But DeWitt was writing in a time period, probably in a place where this was a subject of interest, and so that's just part of his book.
2: Yeah, and one one point maybe to put in support of DeWitt's interpretation would be to point to this famous essay that I reference again and again from Lucian, Alexander the Oracle monger, in which he, he, Lucian, describes that there were basically two camps who were opposed to the rise of this uh, oracle, and they were the Christians and the Epicureans for slightly different, I guess, maybe not slightly different reasons, for very different reasons. uh, They were both opposed and were both condemned by the oracle. So they are both outliers, in a sense, in the Greco-Roman world outliers, as I say, for very different reasons, but they are on a similar footing in that regard.
0: Okay, well, we've now basically come to the end of DeWitt's list of true opinions and false opinions, and we're going to go forward in our general overview next week to turn attention back to ancient Athens and the period in which Epicurus developed his philosophy and do a little bit of biographical. As far as today, Martin, any concluding thoughts
2: No, I have nothing yet. Okay. And Joshua. Yeah, I don't have much to add except to say that it's unfortunate that Colossini isn't uh, here with us to give her insights. But basically, I just want to say over what Cassius, you've already said, which is this is very, very introductory matter that we're going over here today. Basically, a list that covers about two pages in just the introduction to the book, or I guess part of the first chapter. And so there's quite a lot more to come in Norman DeWitt here. And it'll be very interesting to go through it as we do, but there'll be a lot more detail to flesh out some of the things we've been talking about and a lot of things that we have not yet talked about as we read through the book. Yeah, Joshua,
0: again, taking the higher level view about what DeWitt is doing here in this opening section. He's talking to people who have not yet read his book, who are starting out in the process of studying Epicurus, and he's pointing out issues to be aware of, that normally I think many people today are not going to be aware of until much, much further down the road in their reading if they don't start with something like DeWitt is providing here. We've said over and over, there's a tendency to jump into Epicurus on the ethical side and talk about pleasure and happiness and just basically stop at that point. What DeWitt is warning us and telling us about here is that there's an awful lot more under the surface that we need to understand and that we're really not even going to understand the part that we think we're understand about happiness and pleasure unless we have this background overview of where epicurus was coming from and what he was talking about we've had some good i think discussions recently on our forum about if you go back into plato different books that he wrote we were recently discussing some issues about bread and water You'll find frequently that when Epicurus talks about something, he's commenting on a question or an issue that has been raised in the past. And it's very, very helpful to understand the playing field of the issue that he's talking about so that you get the most clear understanding of where he's coming down. Be aware that these things are out there. Don't take everything on a superficial level. And wait until you have more information before you really are confident that you have understood where Epicurus is coming from. Don't just go to the Wikipedia article and presume that that tells you everything you need to know, because it doesn't. Epicurus was producing a worldview and approaching it from a very unique direction that most of us are not familiar with at all today. And so it really helps to get that overall context in so that you can understand the details and apply it as Epicurus was intending. Okay, well, that's a good place for us to stop today. And so we'll close the episode, come back next week. In the meantime, we invite everybody to come to the forum and discuss these issues with us. Epicureanfriends.com is the place. Thanks for listening today, and we'll come back in a week. Bye. Okay.